shall be uh, 12, 17b, middle of verse 17 through 21. So please join with me. We'll get started in prayer and then open up the passage. Lord, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace of salvation, the fact that you have so kindly and so generously come to us and granted that we get to know you, granted that we get to have your word, granted that we get to experience and taste the joy of salvation and of a renewed mind and a renewed heart in relationship with you. We thank you for these things. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Lord, as we open up the passage in Romans this morning, we ask that you would help us. That you would help us to know these commands well from your Apostle Paul. And that we would see and understand the wisdom of them. And that we would apply them to our lives more, more and more diligently. So that you will receive greater honor, that our evangelism will be and have greater light as we have a platform of righteous living and obedience to speak the truth to others from love and in love. Help us, Lord, to grow as a church in holiness and obedience and that that's not just some word we throw around because it's so used to falling off our Christian lips but that we would understand afresh, understand again, that we would remind ourselves and that you would remind us what holiness and purity and obedience actually means and that we would be about these things consciously, intentionally, for your glory. Amen. Romans 17. Romans 12, 17. <clears throat> Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So respecting what is right in the sight of all men. Going back to verse 17 there. The middle of verse 17. We covered the first part of that verse last week. I believe that we all generally know what it means, what, what is right, what is noble, what is good. God even says that unbelievers have uh, his moral law written on their hearts that's going to be accusing them and defending them on the day that Jesus Christ returns and the day that the secrets of men's hearts are judged and bare open before God. Men are aware of what is right and wrong. You can read that in Romans 2.15. So God has given all mankind a conscience awareness of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, what is noble and what is ugly. And we as Christians are commanded to respect what is right in the sight of, of all mankind, of all kinds of men. So whether that's a respectful greeting, uh, politeness, sacrificial service, we honor what is good and right. We respect what is good and right. We are to be praying for our rulers, our judges, the police, the government, which is the next section in Romans, Romans 13. So we show honor and respect to all mankind and for those that are doing services for us. We show kindness toward all fellow human beings, no matter what social class they come from. The rich or the poor. Poor do menial tasks in our eyes. We aren't to belittle any task or any kind of work. God actually exemplifies all levels and degrees and kinds of work in the scriptures. In America, we really struggle with having a low view of labor in general. How do I know that? We are constantly telling our kids, become a lawyer, become a doctor. Is that wrong necessarily? Not necessarily, but it could be. If you are having a bias against a certain type of occupation or work, that you think it's lesser, that you think it's menial, that you think it's too hard or difficult, and Woe on the person who has to do this. That was, that was actually in the Greek and Roman culture, is that society, the upper echelons of society, did look down upon those who labored. And so no matter what people you have before you, whether it's kings, senators, representatives, judges, people with PhDs, medical doctors, it doesn't matter who they are. We respect what is right before all people. We, we show respect and kindness toward all people. We associate with the lowly, those who do menial tasks. The church is not a place where we show personal favoritism toward the rich. 
A church isn't a place where we discipline the poor, but allow the elite to go unpunished. James says that's very, very wrong if that's your mindset, that you become wicked judges, that you're not respecting what is right, that you're biased, that you're partial, that you're not showing fairness and equity for all. So let your standard of right always be the same. Respect what is right in the sight of all men without distinction. Every human being, no matter what, whatever is right, noble, and good, you speak and you act that way to no matter who is in front of you. No matter who is in front of you. A corrupt judge takes bribes and makes exceptions for those who benefit themselves. And we, so often, are like a corrupt judge. We make distinctions in our own mind and we don't treat everybody the same. We don't respect what is right before all men. We, we look down on people. We look down on people. It's so easy to do that. It's always good and respectable to have the same standard of right and wrong for all people. Let me give you an example. John the Baptist. How many of you are familiar with John the Baptist? How many of you want to live like John the Baptist? Randy. He tries to. We keep pulling him back from the mountains. So John the Baptist spoke the truth to Herod. Herod was a ruler, okay? Herod had the power of the sword, as Paul is going to talk about in Romans 13. He has the authority to kill people, just like Pontius Pilate had the authority to crucify Jesus, which came from God. So John the Baptist was a person who did not hold biases. He wasn't like, you know what, if I can just make an exception for Herod and find a platform to get into the Herodian family, then man, all the kind of good I can do for the kingdom. If, if I make some exceptions for them on righteousness and what's right and wrong, and I can convince them to let me use their money and their power and their elite and their prestige to work for the kingdom, oh, it would be so great. Is that the ministry of John the Baptist? Should it be our ministry? Should, should we seek popularity or those who are in prestigious positions for the sake of having a platform to work upon? If that platform is corruption, absolutely not. All people need the gospel. No matter whether they are elite, rich, and rulers, or workers, and poor, and on the lower echelons of society. Herod can... Herod was confronted by John the Baptist about a woman that he had. And he was in, John the Baptist was imprisoned over this. Okay? How many of you are ready to call out a senator for sin in, out of love and then possibly suffer the repercussions? Is your standard of right and wrong the same for all men? Do you have courage or are you a coward? God calls us to be courageous in love and respect what is right before all, to not have biased or partial scales 
equity. We call ourselves Americans and we, we want to believe in lady liberty and just scales. But how far fall do we short? How, how short do we fall? How short do we fall? So this is what happened to Herod. A young lady enticed Herod and all of his dinner guests with sexual types of dancing. And he made a promise to her, I'll do whatever you like. She said, give me the head of John the Baptist. And because he'd spoken this promise before all of his guests, he decided he needed to keep his word to this young woman. And John the, head had his head, John the Baptist had his head removed in prison and brought before the dinner party on a, on a plate. How far are you willing to go to keep your standard of right right? To speak the truth and love to anyone with courage. To always do what is right. To always pursue saying what is true and saying what is right. No matter who it is you are called to by God to speak to. What will it cost you? What might it cost you? Jesus said count the costs when you come to follow me as a disciple. John the Baptist spoke to the Pharisees, the religious rulers. He spoke to the Herodians, the political rulers. He also spoke to the low-class, everyday people. The same. He always did what was right before God and spoke the truth in love, no matter who it was. If someone needed a rebuke, John the Baptist gave it to them plainly. They got it from John. If someone needed to repent and be baptized, John came beside them as a pastor, loved them, and showed them the way of the truth, and pointed them to the Messiah to come. He showed them how they were to walk, and he told them what they ought to do to love and show their love toward God. And that was by being obedient and doing what was right. So people in the world are looking at the church and they're looking at us individuals that make up the church. And this is the question, are we individually going to, beacon, going to be a beacon of what is morally right and lawful? <coughs> While it's true, we must be ordered submissive to authority in the church as well as to the police and the government outside the church. The world is looking at our speech and at our actions very, very intently. How many of you think people are watching you if you profess the name of Christ? They're waiting for you to slip up. And you know how you do. But do you get back on the horse? Do you get back after it? Jesus calls us to get back on the horse and to get back after it. <coughs> cleanse ourselves from our sin to agree with God about what was wrong in our life or the actions that we've done or the things wrongly that we said or how we misrepresented God to some of our family or co-workers or how we were cowards and cowered in a certain situation or scenario Christians should be those who do not tolerate sin for Jesus namesake We should be uncomfortable and mourn and confront and ask people to stop singing. We will pursue holiness so that our light and the gospel that we profess will actually be light and salt. 
We don't want our lampstand to be removed, is the warning from Jesus to his churches for tolerating various kinds of sin in the church, for being overly tolerant, for accepting sin, for, for instead of mourning over sin, seeking to confront and stop it. He says, your lampstand will be removed. I will remove it. Our evangelism, our light, our gospel witness is weakened when the church is weak with regard to doing what is right and saying what is right. Now, most of us are like, how could that be? It's a vigilant task, right? I'm talking about vigilance here. And the Bible warns us about being vigilant. This doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but we could lose our church. We could lose our witness in the town. Ephesus doesn't remain to this day. It's closed in. Ephesus was a church that Timothy pastored after Paul planted. It's gone. There's no Christians there. Titus 2 says this, Urge bond slaves. For us, we would consider that employees. <clears throat> that actually have rights, so our employees have rights. These bond slaves in general did not. <clears throat> to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well pleasing, not an argumentative person, not pilfering, meaning stealing from the boss. <clears throat> but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God and our Savior in every respect. So when we behave correctly and rightly, what are we doing? We are adorning the doctrine of God. We are not showing disrespect to the doctrine of God. We are adorning it with good and proper behaviors. And that's what God and Paul is commending us to calling us to, urging us to, by the mercies of God. We do a disservice to our fellow human beings and to God when we do not strive for what is right and good and respect God's ways and doing what is correct. Okay, next verse. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So this is going to flow in here. What we talked about in the previous verse can cause this peace that's talked about in verse 18 not to happen. <coughs> but so far as it depends on you, be pursuing peace. However, if you are doing what is right, as Paul says, everyone who pursues godliness or righteousness will be persecuted. So one of the results of respecting what is right, pursuing godliness, and pursuing righteousness is that you are going to make people around you very uncomfortable. And if you speak, it's going to get really <coughs> uncomfortable. If you actually open your mouth and say something correct from the text, if you say to this person, God, the living God, 
who owns you and made you believes this behavior is wrong. And I want to tell you about it. It's going to get really uncomfortable. Real fast. I'm sure you're aware of that if you try it with some people. For those who get regenerated, it's awesome. You experience the joy of salvation and you're leaping in joy at the end of the day. But there's the possibility that there will not be peace when you respect what is right and when you're doing what is right and you're pursuing godliness and holiness. But so far as it depends on you, even when you have enemies begin to come and cause discord, you are to be pursuing peace with that person whom discord might come to through your witness, through your mouth, and through your actions. You're not doing this to be boisterous. You're not doing this to get a rile out of somebody. You're doing this from love. You're doing this from righteous motives. You're trying to confront sinners and point them to God in a gentle, loving, peaceable way. No matter what, though, a lot, most people will not feel that that's gentle, comfortable, or nice. We live in a world, what is the number one virtue in America today? Tolerance. The only people we do not tolerate are the intolerant. which falls on its face philosophically. <laughs> How can you be say you're tolerant if you're intolerant of the intolerant? <laughs> Not good. So it's, it's a circle philosophically. They can't argue. But as it depends on you, so this isn't out of negativity, this isn't to be mean, you don't do this out of a mean spirit, it's out of love for Christ and you're pursuing evangelism with people and you're praying that through your witness and doing what is right with your actions and saying what is right from Scripture, letting your speech be seasoned with the truth, it's to win people to the Lord. And so this is that peace Part that you are, this is the motive behind it. It's a peaceful righteousness. It's not a warring righteousness. We don't come down with a great double handed sword and cut sinners' heads off. And we're not supposed to be doing that with our mouth either in anger. John the Baptist just said, Herod, it's wrong for you to have your brother's wife. You get him out of my presence. That confronted my sin. Paul confronted a ruler's sin too, and as soon as he confronted his sin, the guy was like, he got uncomfortable about hearing the gospel. He's like, okay, I'm done hearing this. Because he's talking about my sexual relationship with this woman as well in his presentation of the gospel. Paul started to deal with sin with another ruler near the end of Acts, and that guy was like, okay, that, that's enough. It happened. It happened to the apostles. It happened to Jesus. That's what you should expect as well. But they were peaceful men. They weren't there. Jesus had all authority. And he wasn't going around killing people. John the Baptist, or John and his brother James, wanted to call fire down from heaven when some people were rejecting Jesus in a town. And Jesus said no. 
not time for that. That's not the way that we're to be about the business right now. That day is coming. Fire and judgment is coming. He warned them about that peacefully, not out of anger. Not out of anger. Okay, so a peaceful person pursues and desires to make peace with people. And I pray that that is your desire. And as far as it depends on you, in your respecting what is right and in your doing what is right, you are pursuing it peaceably. Not to make war with other men, but you understand that these people might want to treat you as an enemy if you speak the truth in love. I just want to let you know that that's the reality. So the you in this passage, so far as it depends on you, I want to focus on the you. The you here is singular. And that's important exegetically for this moment, okay? This is important for this whole passage. It's talking about themes of justice and right and wrong kind of in this whole section. And you, as an individual, don't have authority to take justice or judgment into your own hands. Is that, does everybody understand that? What I'm saying is that you aren't to take vengeance. This is like a big over theme in the whole section. Is that you as an individual Christian within a church and as an individual within a family unit, as an individual within a city, within a state, within a, a, a federal government, it's not your authority or your right to establish justice in your mind or in your actions. You're not to take vengeance or to take up the sword or take up justice on your own. And we talked last week about the authority of elders in the church that God established and the authority of the civil government that's outside the church that deals with criminal proceedings. And we'll deal with the civil government more next week. So it depends on you. The individual, Paul is specifically calling out in us as individuals that these are the way we are supposed to think as individuals and this is how we're supposed to behave and this is what we're supposed to do. This is how we're to think. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Look at verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, so tying in with this justice thing and the individual you, you don't need to worry about taking justice into your own hands. God is sovereign. This is a passage that points towards God's sovereignty. How many of you are wondering if I get there? <clears throat> okay, I love these passages about uh, Saul and stuff in the Old Testament and David, but God stopped Saul, King Saul, from being able to kill David. God has the power, the authority, to stop anything from happening to anyone that he doesn't want to have happen. That's the idea behind God's sovereignty. When, when Saul and those three messengers we talked about in Samuel came to kill David, God indwelt them with his spirit against their will. They weren't like, yeah, I want this to happen. Okay, no, God just made them fall down on their face and start prophesying to God and God shows how sovereign he was by making Saul kind of like a madman. He stripped his clothes off till he was naked and prophesied. And then everyone's like, that's the power of God. 
God can do that. God also stopped David from killing Nabal. So not only did God stop Saul, God also stopped David from sinning. You can read that story in 1 Samuel 25. Actually, you want us to go there. 1 Samuel 25, please. <coughs> So God stopped David from killing Nabal. The Lord later strikes Nabal for his misdeeds and his attitudes. The Lord is in charge. There's no need to take matters into your own individual hands. 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 32. I'm going to read quickly. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Okay? David saying, God sent you to meet me. God sent you to meet me. Blessed be your discernment, blessed be you. He blesses her. Who have kept me this day from bloodshed, and from avenging myself by my own hand. Was David in authority yet? Did he have the right to kill fellow Israelites? Was he king yet? He wasn't. Granted, Nabal greatly offended David. He'd been protecting him with his men. Verse 34, Nevertheless, as the Lord God Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, God, sovereign, uses Abigail, the instrument in his hands, to come and talk to David. David is giving credit ultimately to God for this intervention that comes through his agent Abigail. For surely, unless you, Abigail, had come to me quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until this morning light as much as one male in his household. David was going to come with his men and kill every single male, and the women would all be weeping for how Nabal disrespected David and his men. David was going to take vengeance into his own hands. Take justice into his own hands. But God stopped David from this deed. So David received from her what she brought to him. She gave him a gift. Go up to your house in peace, David says to her. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light the next day. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things for conversation with David and how David was going to kill all the men in his whole house for his disrespect. And his heart died within him so that he became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Vengeance is in the hands of the Lord. You don't need to take justice or matters into your own hand. Now, this isn't a promise that your enemy is going to be killed this way by God. But you're to understand that God is sovereign from a story like this. And that you can entrust yourself and your situations and your scenarios to Him. And that God will deal with things in His timing and in His way. Through the authorities that he's put in place on the earth or by his own means 
um, supernaturally, apart from human uh, people. So if you have a crime that happens to you, tell it to the police, that they may deal with it and that criminal. If you've been sinned against by a Christian, this is important, pay close attention to this, talk with them privately. If they've said something to you that you don't understand, or you thought, that person's doing something wrong, talk to them privately about it. Find out if you've got the right motive or the right gist in your mind about that. If they are in sin and they've actually truly sinned against you, go and talk to them privately so that you may win your brother over to what is good and right. Win your fellow Christian over to doing what is right in the sight of God. If that sinning brother doesn't listen to you, take two or three witnesses, as Matthew 18 describes, so that they may hear the case. These witnesses can hear the case and establish the truth. What is right and wrong? Is Joe right or is Sally right or who's wrong? And the two witnesses can help discern what's right or wrong if it has to come to step two. And then there's the, the further steps of discipline regarding in order to be an orderly church, when you bring the matter before the church, if the two witnesses and the two people uh, can't handle it, it can be brought to the elders who then can speak to the whole congregation concerning the matter as they see fit. And so on. But my friends, this is my exhortation to you. And, and, and look to this passage in the Old Testament and look to others like it. Trust God with the matters of justice. Don't, don't take things into your own hands, even in your mind. Okay, in, in this passage of Scripture, we're not supposed to think evil thoughts for somebody doing us wrong. It says we're supposed to overcome evil by good and bless these people and do a kind gift to our enemies. So we're not even allowed to think wrong thoughts toward these people or revenge toward them. We're commanded to do something nice to them. And this is what it says. But if your enemy... Verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. <clears throat> that means take him to caribou coffee. <laughs> Want to be contextual. 21st century. Maybe, maybe you can bake them some rolls. Take him a bread basket. Maybe you can take them a fruit basket. Take them a basket full of fruit. <laughs> a basket that's made out of fruit. Jacob? Yes? I, the concept of enemy today is really hard. It's just, because they did something to me. I guarantee you, in this moment, in this room, almost everyone sitting here has somebody that they don't like. That they don't like because, so your enemy... Because they've, they've enemy said something that they kind of don't like. Someone who's done something to you, or just someone who disagrees with your philosophy, or what is enemy? It like, could, I it, can see someone who, like, if, if they tried to bring physical harm to my family. But... That's just not, I mean, it's certainly not very common here. Is it, is, it, is it someone who doesn't do something that I want them to do? Yeah, down to the smallest thing. So that, to me, comes to my sin. 
I'm calling them an enemy because they're not doing what I want them to do or saying what I want them to say. It can be. And instead of, I don't know, it just seems like in, in my life, most 90% of the time, it's not a matter of gifting my enemy. It's a matter of repenting because I think them my enemy. <laughs> That's a part of it. You I definitely need to repent. Or and then you need to move toward feeding that person. Well, Jesus had enemies, and he never did anything wrong. So, I mean, even if you do the right thing all the time, I mean, you're still going to have enemies. But who were his enemies? They weren't. Were they just people who didn't think like him? Or? Jesus said this to Simon, Get behind me, Satan. You're my enemy. You're not after the will of God at this moment. It gets down to that detail, even about truth, even with his own disciples. Does that mean Jesus was like, you're not saved? Because I, you know, no. Because Simon was acting like an enemy, thinking wrong thoughts, not wanting Jesus to be killed. But thinking the wrong thought, not wanting to Jesus to die, was against the will of God. And Jesus said, you are thinking like God's enemy because you're not thinking your thoughts after God's thoughts. God's will is that I die so that I might bring all men to myself. Your enemy can be Christians and non-Christians. Oh, yeah. To me, like you said, you, it's people, you said your enemy, those are not doing God's way. God's way, right. Yeah, yeah and as we're going to learn later in Romans, Jews and Gentiles have cultural differences. We grew up, it's not okay to eat cheese from the mother's cow with the meat from that cow. And that's an offense to them, we're going to learn. That's offensive. When the, when the Gentiles were eating their food in a specific way, some of the Jews were offended by this action. Now to us, it's like, that's ridiculous. So, so in that situation, you would say to that Jew, this person's not your enemy. You need to repent for the way you're thinking. I guess that's what I was thinking. No, actually Paul no. tells the more mature Christian who can eat the food, don't do that in front of them and offend them while that other brother is matured through teaching over time. We'll get there. But he does say to Peter, these people are not your enemies. I mean, they get in a fight over it, don't they? With regard to what? When he wouldn't sit with certain people. they were. He, Peter considered certain people his enemies. No, he didn't. He started behaving in a way, in a manner that wasn't correct with his gospel teaching. So he was saying the right gospel, but then he was living another gospel by segregating himself when certain Pharisees from James came up from Jerusalem. He began acting a different way, and Paul confronted him for that sinful action that was undermining the truth of the gospel for all kinds of people, Jew or Gentile. That didn't mean that, like with the term enemy, we can have behaviors that in our mind, we now view this person kind of like an enemy. In your mind, you're thinking enemy means a Japanese person who's cutting... I don't know cutting. what you're thinking. It's just a term that's, it's, I don't know, it's one of those terms that, that was probably very different to these, to what we think of. Did you read the notes? Did you read the story at the end of the notes? I read the first half of the notes. 
Okay. So there's a husband and a wife story at the end of the notes. It kind of, you could feel like that's a possible enemy type scenario. Yes? I'm just going to say, in God's eyes, an enemy to us should be anything that is not in his work, that he's against. What he is, what would be an enemy to him and, and sinning against him yes. would be our enemy. Even the smallest sin is showing a transgression against God as an enemy. Thinking wrong thoughts, as Peter did, and then speaking, acting on them by saying something to Christ was wrong. So when your fellow Christian or whoever uh, persecutes you or is not at peace with you, instead of taking matters into your own hands, there is something that God does want you to do. He wants you to take them a fruit basket. And we'll repeat that. Feed them, give them something to drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. When you crush evil with kindness, people feel shame for what they've done. This is from the Proverbs. Oftentimes, they're like, I want to hold my tongue against this person because this person is doing something nice to me. They're doing something nice for my kids. And verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But the heaping burning coals is an act of kindness, isn't it? Because that's how, if, a, if somebody had, their fire went out, they had this uh, apparatus they put on their head, go to their neighbor and got coals, and then carried it back to their home to light their fire. I'm not sure of that illustration. I've always been taught that proverb means when you do something kind to a person who's mistreated you, that it was like a, a proverbial analogy of you're heaping shame on this person, you're burning their evil up, and they're like, it's like a shameful action. It wasn't like a literal, you're pouring hot coals on somebody's head, I believe. I'm not sure, Ted, of, of an actual physical illustration that was done similarly. That would probably really burn somebody real bad. Definitely don't do that. Don't put burning coals literally on somebody's head. Don't take your charcoal grill and throw that on your neighbor next time. Okay, quick story and we'll dismiss. A woman heard another woman talking about Jesus and forgiveness of sins. The woman's heart was drawn to the conversation and she desired to know more. She really wanted to know how to be forgiven as she listened to this woman. She felt her life was wrong and in shambles and in many ways as she listened to these words out of this other woman. This woman was given the gospel and encouragement on how to live according to Jesus' ways. Respecting what is right. Doing what is right. Do good, obey his laws and commands, and you will have joy, John 15, she was told. This woman went home and began a new kind of life. She began to study and learn what God tells women and how they are to live. She began making better meals for her children and husband. She began to be gentler, more tranquil in heart around her husband and offered him a friendly ear and less correction, shrugs and sighs. She told him about her Bible and how God was changing her life and her mind. He poked fun at her a little and went on with life as normal. This woman kept faithful. She prayed for him. 
She took care of his home and his kids. She taught the kids to respect dad, like she was beginning to respect dad. She made him his favorite meals, kept his clothes ready for work. She continued to listen to him and be a friend to him, be there for him, do the tasks that he asked of her. She continued to love her man and prayed the Lord would open his eyes. The man and his two friends came home like usual on Friday night after work. The woman had a meal for him and his friends. They ate and then went to the bar. When they got back, it was 12.30 a.m., they were being a little rowdy and listening to loud, distasteful music. The wife came out of her room and gently told her husband the kids missed him, loved him, and were sleeping now, peaceably. He asked his friends to quiet down a little and cut down the music. He demanded that she make them some of his favorite dip and warm up French bread. She was tired and upset, startled, but she quietly asked God for strength and help and thanked him, God, Forgiving, for forgiving her of her sins. She went to the kitchen, began making the dip and warming the bread. The husband proceeded to speak of his wife's Christianity to his buddies in the background. They laughed and said, come on, what makes Jesus and God so different than all the other religions and gods? The wife said, well, there are many proofs historically, many accurate details archaeologically, many proofs of foretold events hundreds of years in advance before they happened. I began simply convicted of my sins and realized I needed to be forgiven and live differently. I realized I wanted to treat my husband with respect and teach the kids to respect you, him. I read that it is better to do what is right than to offer a bunch of prayers and sacrifices. I learned that it's better to forgive people than to hate people. I learned and see the value in serving you all now and being a kind-hearted person that can witness to you about the God I believe in. And he has truly made some serious changes in my life. The buddies brushed her off and chuckled, but her husband sat there and his heart sunk and was warmed at the same time. He suddenly realized the changes his wife had made in her life. He felt awful because he'd taken advantage of her kindness. But he felt happy and thankful that she loved him so much more in this new way. He wanted what she had. He asked his friends to go home. He apologized to his wife for the late night visit and being drunk. He apologized for his rude behavior and thanked her for her kindness. He asked her if she would forgive him and tell him about the God that she believed in. 1 Peter 3 says this, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, the braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on fine dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. 
You have become her children, Sarah's children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Amen, you dismissed. In your room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know this week. Thank you.